Sex, money, family. When I meet with couples who are preparing to get married, we talk a little bit about what some of the usual stressors are when a marriage starts out or even as it continues. Sex, money, family. Someone suggested recently that I add in house cleaning, so I'll consider that. In fact, as I think about the Brady Bunch song with its sort of idyllic family unit, all of the problems resolved in a neat half hour, I wonder if it wasn't because they had Alice. Really. (laughs) Alice, the housekeeper who also could solve the family's problems. The truth is, actually, we don't need a marriage for our extended family, or even our nuclear family, for that matter, to cause problems for us. Our most intimate relationships, for many of us, are in that family, and not, of course, with people we have chosen. There's more than that, though, I think. Sometimes we talk about friends and saying that, you know, we get to choose our friends, whereas we're stuck with our family, and that's why there's a difference. I don't know about you, but I have plenty of friends that drive me up the wall sometimes. I have friends who act in ways I wish that they wouldn't make choices that I don't exactly approve of. And yet... Those friends don't get me stuck. They don't trigger me in quite the way my family does. Few people can make me anxious, stressed, worked up, enraged, or just caught the way that my closest family members do. Oh, happy Mother's Day. I forgot. My mother is here today, actually. I have cleared all stories shared with her beforehand. (laughs) Conveniently, my mother is a developmental psychologist, so when I was growing up, she was able to helpfully remind me of what stage I was going through at any point in my childhood, adolescence, young adulthood. Perhaps it is my chance to return the favor. Mothers, at least in the American psyche, are like a concentrated version of all the stuff that families can be. All the triggers, the joy, the wonder, the challenge that we hold. Or maybe that's just my psyche. For instance, let me tell you a story of something my mother did once. It was a few years back, although not that long ago. I was a young adult at the time. And uh, she was visiting. They live in upstate New York, my parents. Um, she was visiting. And, um, and she said, oh, when she saw me, oh, your hair's so long. I like it. Right? How could she? How could she? Your hair's so long. I like it. Obviously fighting words. She would tell a story if she could. I actually offered to have her co-do this platform with me, and somehow she declined. I don't know why, Mama. Um, 
she would tell a story that I think goes back through my um, adolescence, although I'm sure I continue it today. She describes coming down um, from upstairs, ready to start the day, dressed in whatever she was wearing, and, um, and I would look at her and see her outfit and go, huh, is that right? Or there was more in the huh somehow. I got it? Huh, that was it. Huh. I can appreciate that now because I have a daughter who has seen my outfits when I have come down in the morning and said, are you wearing that? (laughs) And then when I say, yes, I was planning to wear it, is there something wrong with it? Oh, no, it's fine. (laughs) Oh, no, it's fine. And then you have to decide if you are going to change and have your whole day have been dictated by an eight-year-old fashion sense or stick to your guns and spend the whole day thinking you look really a little off. (laughs) That's right. No one can push my buttons the way my mother can except my older daughter. (laughs) That is the trick with parenting ourselves. I think it is not all happy and magical any more than being a child of parents is. It is, however, a great way to notice our own triggers and make us aware of our family of origin stuff. That stuff, that family of origin stuff, has always been so interesting to me. In fact, thinking about that kind of stuff and what we do with it and how we handle it and how it affects us has been one of the cornerstones of the work I have done as a clergy person, thinking about how to work with a group of people, all of whom have their own stuff, right, and what it's like when we get that stuff together. A lot of my own thinking is informed by a field called family systems. It's an approach, really, to, um, to psychotherapy or to understanding how to work with people that was begun by Murray Bowen in the mid-20th century as a way of understanding individuals' challenges by looking at the system that they're part of. The idea that none of us exist alone, separate from this system, No matter whether we think we are connected with the system, we are, Bowen would say. And then Edwin Friedman later took that idea, that learning of Bowen's, and applied it to congregational systems, which is where I first started interacting with it. The idea that each of us is in our own family system, and then when we come into community with each other, we bring those family systems with us, whether we meant to or not, and they bounce off each other and interact The idea of family systems is is that you can't really understand who you are or who another person is without an understanding of that full system. But it also places the responsibility squarely on the individual within the system to do the understanding and learning. I just found a new book that's written in the family systems um, sort of genre uh, by Jenny Brown, a social worker uh, from Australia, called Growing Yourself Up. It's subtitled How to Bring Your Best to All of Life's Relationships. 
growing yourself up. Darn it. I always wish it were the other person who had to grow up, you know? Really, that seems so much more convenient than growing ourselves up. Quoting Harriet Lerner in that book, the only person we can change and control is our own self. Boy, we knew that, didn't we, on some level? Changing our own self, Lerner goes on, can feel so threatening and difficult that it is often easier to continue an old pattern of silent withdrawal or ineffective fighting and blaming. Well... When you put it like that, growing oneself up sounds like it might be the better alternative. And the point of family systems really is to grow yourself, to understand the system, but to use that understanding to work on your own stuff. One of the hallmarks of family systems is found in that idea of understanding. What Bowen would say is you don't have to like your family. That's good for many of us, perhaps. Although I should say I deeply love my mother, which is why she is here listening to me complain about her. (laughs) You don't have to like your family, but you have to know them, Bowen would say. You have to know them. One of the ways that family systems helps you to know your family is making geneograms. Have any of you ever done that, made a geneogram of your family? It's a chart. I love charts. I don't love Excel, but I love charts. I like making them by hand and then filling in little colors, and geneograms are all about that. It's like a family tree, but with more information. So you draw the whole chart of your family, where you are in it, and and then your parents and their siblings all the way back. And you have different symbols for different genders, and you put in as many dates as you know. And then you add in things like addiction or mental illness, physical illness. You note marriages and divorces, but you also note tense relationships. So there might be people who are married, but they've always had some trouble, and so their marriage line would have a little tension there, or siblings. You're looking as you create that chart for patterns through your family, back through the generations. What are the ways that your family repeats itself, generation after generation? Where do you see one generation reacting to a previous generation's choices? What dates are important in your family? You'd be surprised how many times the same dates pop up. What names are chosen over and over again for children in your family? And what does that mean? I've been fascinated. My husband's extended family, his mother is one of seven. There were three girls and there were four boys named Bill, Paul, Dan, and something else, which I now forget. Don't tell him. Um, it, no, there were only three boys because there's four girls. That's it. Bill, Paul, and Dan. Bill, Paul, and Dan. And uh, so those four girls got married, and one of them married a Bill, and one of them married a Paul, and one of them married a Dan. Now, they're common names, of course, and it was a Catholic family, and they married Catholic men. But isn't that a little funny? That's what family systems would invite us to do, to look at the chart of our family 
and be able to step back just a moment from the fight over the ham at Easter and say, look at that. Isn't that a little funny? Isn't that interesting? The idea of bringing those patterns into our awareness where we can notice them and notice our reactions to them and then choose if we might want to react differently, where we might want to work on growing ourselves up, that annoying thing we're supposed to do. It brings an element of remove and in some ways an element of playfulness to the whole thing. After all, it's just family, it's just life. You might use that knowledge, that understanding, and create little games with your family. Sometimes people are um, told to create a checklist, you know, you're going to go to family dinner and see that one uncle that just drives you up the wall. And so, you know, he's going to ask the same questions he asks every year, and you know you'll get triggered, so why not make a list ahead of time? And that way you can surreptitiously check them off as he goes, oh, you don't think I might want that dessert? Oh, you wonder if I have a girlfriend yet? Check. Oh, you think I might be wasting my college degree? Check. Just check it off little by little. Understanding our families, understanding them at that remove, is such a helpful way to understand ourselves. And others can help us with it, too, I remember the first time my husband and I spent a week-long vacation with my parents. We had rented a condo in Florida, and it was a great vacation. It was really fun. We all had a good time. And at the end of the week, my husband said to me, that was so helpful. I feel like I get you better now, (laughs) having seen your family, and more having seen me in the system, right? Having seen me interact with my parents. I feel like I get you better now. Family Systems invites us to step back, look at the patterns, and get ourselves better now, to understand more what makes us tick. Part of the challenge to that kind of work, I think, is that that psyche piece is is that that image we have in our larger society, the stories that society tells us about what relationships are supposed to look like, especially, perhaps, with our mothers. I think of today on Mother's Day, the image of the flowers and the chocolate and the perfect relationship, whatever that might be, whatever perfection is supposed to look like. It often makes me think of a children's story that you might be familiar with. It's a Shel Silverstein book called The Giving Tree. Do any of you know that story? Now, I hope I'm not about to destroy your favorite children's book for you. But here's the thing. The Giving Tree is a story of a little boy and a tree that he loves. And, and it's a sweet story in many ways. It's a story about the little boy growing up over time and about the different ways that he interacts with this tree. So he plays around the tree and he sleeps in its shade and then he gets a little bit older and he needs something and the tree gives it to him so he gets apples to begin with and, and then he needs wood for something and he gets a, a branch. 
And then as you go along in this child's life, he needs more and more, and the tree has it to offer until by the end, the tree is a stump. And the boy is an old man and comes back and sits on the stump and rests a while. There's a sweetness to that story, but it might not be the very best version of a a mature adult relationship. If we cut ourselves down until we are stumps, well, doesn't sound that great to me. It is, in fact, in many ways, I think, an ode to dysfunctional relationships, to the idea of self-sacrificial love, love that we give and give until there is nothing of us left but a stump. Now, here's what family systems folks would say about that. We tend to think that, that in our relationships, in our family, our extended family or our nuclear family, or even with our friendships, that we have a choice between choosing close connection, close, loving, good connection, or no connection at all. And that if we can't have the one, then we'll have to choose the other. Family systems, remember, would talk about the idea that you don't have to like your family, right? but you have to know them. Now, I want to give a caveat here that there are times when we cannot stay in relationship with someone. There are times when relationships are unsafe for us and when we need to draw a boundary so that our physical or our emotional stability is kept safe and guarded. But there are other times when we can choose to be in that connection in a different way. One of the most important learnings for me, both as I think about extended family and then also as it connects into a community like ours, is the idea of self-differentiation. I've talked about it before, I know. It's the idea that we are a self with boundaries, like here's where I end, and you are a different self, you end somewhere else. Family systems would say that every relationship exists on a continuum from self-differentiated, fully self-differentiated, I'm one totally different person, you're another totally different person, to completely enmeshed. We are the same person. I carry your anxiety fully. If you don't like something, I pick it right up, and I don't like it too, and I'm sad and upset for you. And, and carry in me all that you are. The work of growing ourselves up, family systems would say, is to move along the line toward self-differentiation. Sometimes, because of the way our culture creates sort of expectations about relationship, we imagine that the best kind of relationship is this one over here, this enmeshed one, where we feel everything another person feels, where we give them the branch and the apples and cut ourselves down until we have given all we can. But really, if we're over here, we're able to be connected through challenge through disagreement. We're able to stay connected when one of us is voting for Bernie and the other for Hillary. That's a trick. We're able to stay connected with the folks voting for Trump, too, right? 
were able to keep that connection going on. My mother and I like to talk, because she's a psychologist and has also studied family systems, about the fact that we're like about three-quarters of the way over unamashed, and we're happy with that. It works fine for us. It's true that when she gets a headache, if she tells me about it from upstate New York, I usually need to take a Tylenol. Because somehow I get one too. And she's given me some strange stomach thing which is neither genetic nor contagious. But I have it now. I'm sure the other way works as well, probably in even larger numbers as she takes on my ailments. So we like it. We like being over here in three quarters enmeshed. And you might have relationships like that too. Or you might have relationships where you're over here just a little uncomfortable and wanting to grow yourself up. So what does all of this have to do with ethical culture? What does a community like ours have to say about relationships? I already shared that this kind of thinking has been helpful to me as I've worked with the community and the congregation as I serve as your clergy person, which requires sometimes rather a lot of self-differentiation when people might disagree with me. It happens like just occasionally that someone here has an opinion different than my own. Once every, you know, few years, I would say. And then it is helpful to know where I end and you begin and whether I might want to change my opinion or not, sort of like my outfit, you know, when the eight-year-old doesn't approve. I think one of the most helpful, the most religious things about this work, really, is its intersection with the ethical culture understanding of worth in every person. I think that's one of the ideas that folks struggle with most. People come in my office and tell me about someone who has behaved in a way that that doesn't work for them, behaved in a way perhaps that they find really unethical, and they say, I don't know how to keep believing in their worth. I don't know if I can have a relationship with them, they might say. And we get confused sometimes, I think. We, we, can, we can move over into the Shel Silverstein version, the giving tree version, and think that affirming someone's worth means that everything they do is acceptable. Instead, self-differentiation would tell us that we can be where we are, affirm someone's worth, who they are themselves, understand that they are different than we, put boundaries perhaps on how we have relationship with them, on how we interact with them, but stay connected through those boundaries. Stay connected through the disagreement, through the fights, through the emotional turmoil. Ethical culture tells us that there is a human need for relationship. Every person has worth, it tells us, and we are all connected to each other. None of us exist alone. Felix Adler, who founded Ethical Culture, saw our societies as a kind of living laboratory, a place where we could practice and fail and practice again at having the kind of relationships we longed for. 
That sounds a lot like growing ourselves up to me. And family systems conveniently would say that sometimes we have parallel relationships in our lives. A coworker might remind us of our father. That relationship might feel similar to us, or our relationship with our child might be just like our relationship with our cousin. And what it says is that if you work on either of those relationships, the other is likely to improve. Isn't that helpful? It's like two for the price of one, multitasking, growing yourself up. I love it. And so it would say, if this one relationship is too painful for us to work on right now, if we are not ready or the other person is not ready, then we can work on this one over here. We can devote our energy to that relationship becoming self-differentiated and healthful, and this relationship might well change too. Well, that means that being in a community like this one where we have the opportunity to be in relationship with so many people gives us a chance to practice other relationships in our lives without even having to pick up a phone to call them. I often think that the reason that I ended up going into ministry, the reason I became a clergy person, is that I come from a relatively small extended family. I'm an only child. My parents each have just one sibling. And I didn't grow up with a mess of cousins and aunts and uncles visiting all the time. Instead, I found my Unitarian Universalist congregation growing up and built more family around me. And here I still am building family around me. The idea of a congregational family being like an extended family means that all those practices that are good in our most intimate relationships are good in our more public life as well, our life with each other. Finally, I think a community like ours offers a place to be present to the messiness. Humanism has always been about acknowledging the fullness of human existence, the messiness, the complicated nature of our relationships. This is a place where you will not walk in and have someone say to you, Mother's Day is easy. It's a place where we know and notice what is hard as well as what is beautiful. I'd like to close with a poem I found called Mothers by Nikki Giovanni. The last time I was home to see my mother, we kissed, exchanged pleasantries and unpleasantries, pulled a warm, comforting silence around us and read separate books. I remember the first time I consciously saw her We were living in a three-room apartment on Burns Avenue. Mommy always sat in the dark. I don't know how I knew that, but she did. That night, I stumbled into the kitchen, maybe because I've always been a night person or perhaps because I had wet the bed. She was sitting on a chair. The room was bathed in moonlight, diffused 
through those thousands of panes, landlords who rented to people with children were prone to put in windows. She may have been smoking, but maybe not. Her hair was three-quarters her height, which made me a strong believer in the Samson myth, and very black. I'm sure I just hung there by the door. I remember thinking, what a beautiful lady. She was very deliberately waiting, perhaps for my father to come home from his night job or maybe for a dream that had promised to come by. Come here, she said. I'll teach you a poem. I see the moon. The moon sees me. God bless the moon, and God bless me. I taught it to my son, who recited it for her, just to say we must learn to bear the pleasures as we have borne the pains.